And so in order to help us understand and in order to display to the universe the power and the wisdom and the grace and the mercy that will bring this peace to fruition, God established on a tiny outpost in the backwaters of his universe a place where this cosmos could see this shalom. Lived out in a group of people who had been made right with God by the ministry of his son. And that group is the church. And Paul has been writing to this church and he has been saying to them, because of what God is doing in the universe and because of what he has established in you, you have a responsibility to walk worthy of this amazing calling that God has extended to you. And so beginning in chapter 4, we began looking at the different ways in which God intends for his people, the church, to display that wisdom, that power, that mercy, and that grace in their daily life. And by the time we get to chapter 5, in fact, by the time we get to the last half of chapter 5, we discover that, that where Paul has been going is that this wisdom, this shalom that God has established should be displayed in our households. And so he has a beginning in chapter 5, verse 22, and, and then following in chapter 23 all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, he is going to address the household and he is going to talk about what that household should look like by addressing every member of a household. He's going to talk to the wives. He's going to talk to the husbands. He's going to talk to the children. He's going to talk to the parents. He's going to talk to the servants. He's going to talk to the masters. And he is going to say to them, there are very specific things. There is a specific wisdom that God has given you and that the Spirit of God will enable you to follow by which you can display in your household what this cosmos actually needs to see, what the world actually needs to witness in the shalom that God has established. Now we step back and we noted that in Paul's day in the city of Ephesus, a Roman Greek culture existed and there were very, very specific ways in which that culture viewed the household. And if you were looking for a household model that you could model your little household after, your particular household, your servants, your wife, your children, where would you look? And if you lived in Ephesus and you lived in a Roman Greek culture, where you would look was to one primary household that established itself in the very center of the empire. And that household was the household of the emperor himself. When Paul was writing the book of Ephesians, that particular household was in a great deal of, of confusion and intrigue and mystique. The emperor Caligula had been ruling for some time and his son Nero was in his ascendancy and there was a great deal of, of things that were happening under the surface behind the scenes as Nero and his own mother began manipulating to try to figure out how to move all of the rest of the household out of the way of him becoming the next emperor. 
This is, this is what the premier household in the Roman Empire was like. It's no wonder that the smaller units, the smaller households, were also filled with intrigue and all kinds of lasciviousness and wickedness. And in the midst of all of this, Paul looks at the Christians who made up the church at Ephesus and says, now, your individual households should be radically different in every way. And in order for that to happen, he begins to address every member of the household. Wives, you are to joyfully, voluntarily submit to the leaders uh, in your life. To, uh, you should support the leadership of your own husbands. Husbands, you are to willingly, joyfully, tenderly, sacrificially love and serve your wives. Children, you are to honor and reverence your own fathers. Fathers, you are to nurture your own children with tender affection. Servants, you are to render voluntary, joyful, glad obedience to your masters. And masters, you are to graciously and kindly serve your servants because you yourself are a servant. You yourself have a master. These are radically different ways of approaching life in an individual household. And and there was one person in that household who had the ability, more than any other member of that household, to create the context and the atmosphere for all of this shalom to take place. There was one individual who could make an incredible difference. And that individual was the father, the husband, the master. And at the head of all the ways in which he could create such a compelling display of shalom in his house, at the head of all the different ways that he could do this, was the way in which he used his power and his position. There was no question in Paul's day, if you looked at any Roman or Greek home or household, there was no question who was in charge of that household. There was no question. By virtue of his position, by virtue of his right, by virtue of his authority, there was one person in that household who held all of the power. He held all of the authority. We took time as we were sort of setting up this series, this brief series on what it means to be a household that displays shalom to a world that desperately needs to see it. We took time to see what a household looked like. And we noted that in the Greek and Roman world, a a pater familias, a, a head of a household, had absolute authority over every arena in that household, over every person, over everything that happened in that house. He even held authority to the point of life or death for the members of that household. There was no question in Paul's day who was the person in charge who had all of the power and all of the authority. And Paul looks at those Christian brothers and he says to them, in essence, you have the ability 
to change everything in your house. If you will use your power and your authority in radically different ways than every other head of household around you. And we're just going to cut to the chase this morning. Where Paul is actually going is this. You need to use your position. You need to use your power and your authority over your home. You need to exercise it in the same way and for the same reasons that Jesus uses his power and his authority for the good and for the benefit of his own household, the church. Jesus talked this way, didn't he, to his disciples when he said, do not use your power the way Gentiles use power to lord it over people. But instead, use your power to what? What's the word? Can we talk for a minute here? Put the sermon on pause. What's the word? Use your power not to lord it over, but to what? It starts with an S. But to serve. And so that's, in essence, what Paul is going to say, and he's going to sum it all up in in one overarching idea when he looks at every husband that was in the church at Ephesus. It's almost like the Apostle Paul would would sit down or, or walk up to one of those men and have a very personal, very intimate conversation with him and say, let me tell you how to radically transform every relationship in your home. And let's start with the most important one. Husbands, here is how to use your authority and your position and your power. Serve your house. And here's how to do it. Let's start with the person that is most close to you. If you want to serve your household, here's the best way to do it. And here's where you need to start. Love your wife. Love your wife. Now, you know, we have heard this text so often. I mean, it's almost like autopilot, right? When we're going to talk about marriage or when we go to a marriage conference or, or when something comes up and, and we're going to talk about the relationship we have with our husband or the relationship we have with our wife, it's like we can almost quote it. What does Paul say? What does God say? Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit and obey your husbands. It's almost like we just autopilot and go right there. But if we could this morning, for the time that we have together, put all of that aside and pretend like we were hearing Ephesians chapter 5 for the very first time, when Paul said this, it would be radical, it would be shocking to hear, even in a Christian assembly. For God to say to the husbands, love your wives. It wasn't that there were no pagan marriages in Ephesus or in Rome or in Greece where where there weren't good amicable, amicable relationships between husbands and wives. I mean, it wasn't unheard of that a husband would like his wife and love his wife or the wife would like her husband and love her husband. I mean, we do have actual statements to that effect. Let me read you one. There was a particular philosopher who said this. He encouraged husbands to do this. Let me read you words that come almost 2,200 years ago. 
Husbands, love your wives for what, sweeter, for what is sweeter than when a wife is lovingly disposed to her husband and strife does not split them apart. And we would all go, okay, that's good. That's good stuff. Let me read you another one. Somebody said this, in marriage, there must be above all perfect companionship and mutual love. So it's not like in the ancient world, people didn't know about love and marriage. I mean, there were a lot of broken marriages and there were a lot of abuses of power and authority, but it's not like there wasn't at least some understanding between husbands and wives that it could be really, really good if there was amicableness and if they liked each other and they loved each other. But when Paul said, love your wives, that's not what anybody had in mind. Let me explain. There were three terms that were commonly used in Paul's day to talk about love between two people. So the first of those terms is a word that we've sort of changed a little bit from its original meaning, but the word was the word eros or eros. We get our word erotic from this term, eros. And this word really talked about something that you saw that was beautiful. You you looked at something or you looked at someone and you saw something that was desirable and you wanted that thing or that person. It's talking about some inner or outer beauty that appeals to the beholder in some way that creates a desire to have or enjoy what it saw. And so sometimes when a Roman or Greek culture would talk about love, this is the word they would use. This is the word that would talk about beauty and desirability. There was another word, the word philos or phileo, you you know this term, and this term is talking about loving affection that is usually associated with a deep friendship between two people who have something in common. They come together, and they have shared experiences, or they have something in common, they have mutual affinities, or mutual likes, or dislikes, and, and that shared experience that mutuality brings them together. We could talk about compatibility here. They're compatible. So desirability, compatibility, and then there was a third term, and this is a term that would be used for family love. This is the word storge. This, this term usually referred to the affection or the loyalty that would be shared between members of a human family. I'm going to be loyal to you I'm in a relationship to you based on the fact that we're in the same family. And so when somebody comes against you, I'm going to stand with you. When you have a need, I'm going to stand with you. That's the idea. So these three terms, the term for beauty, the term for compatibility, and the term for loyalty would have been used in Paul's day. But there was a fourth term that you almost never heard. And in fact, it's the term you're most familiar with because even though it was never or hardly ever used, 
in the pagan world, it was the one term that the New Testament writers seized on and that they used when they talked about love, and it was the word agape. Agape is much different than love that that is based on beauty or compatibility or even loyalty. This is a term that was used to describe the free, unrequited affection that somebody would give to someone else who had no ability to return anything for that love. That's why oftentimes this love would be described in words like unconditional. This this love had no conditions on it. In other words, the person who was doing the loving knew instinctively that as he or she were extending this love, there would probably be nothing in return. This is very different than Eros because Eros looked at something, saw beauty in it, and said, I want to enjoy that beauty. Agape would say, you know, whatever is there, I may never experience, I'm going to love anyway. This is the kind of love that would be described as sacrificial, that would give greatly and deeply with no hope of return, simply out of a deep affection, a deep loyalty, a deep love for the person to whom all of this sacrifice is being extended. And the reason the New Testament writers chose this word is because it is the only word that would fit the kind of love that God has for you. And the kind of love that Jesus Christ had for the church. And that's exactly what we see. There is a reality that Scripture sets before every Christian man, and it is this. You are to agape your wife. This is the kind of love that will radically transform your marriage, and it will have impact in every corner of your household. So what does that actually look like? This reality that Paul lays out is also fleshed out in a responsibility that you can see, again, in in the text before us. Husbands, love your wives. This is a command. It's, It's not optional. This is not like, do your best at this. This is actually a command. It's to be done willingly. This is not forced out of you. It's not like you come to the marriage and and you begrudgingly do this. That that immediately destroys the picture that God is up to. This this destroys what God himself is trying to do through you in this marriage. This is to be done willingly and and not forcibly, and it's to be done persistently and constantly. This is not just an every once in a while thing. This is not like on your wife's birthday or on your anniversary. This is to become the atmosphere in which your relationship is carried out. It is to be done selflessly and sacrificially as you seek to use all of your power and all of your authority to serve her. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. 
There's one person in the Trinity that has been given power and authority over the church. Obviously, God the Father and God the Son have power and authority, but there has been one head that has been appointed to lead the church. He has been given all power and all authority. And we have that in Matthew 28, right? Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, all authority has been given unto me. It's repeated in Acts 1.8. And so here is the one individual who has all the power and all of the authority and it's rightfully his. And here's the question, how does he use that power and that authority? And who does he use it for? And the answer is, he uses that power and that authority almost exclusively for one person, his bride, the church. So let me ask you something, gentlemen, and I'm asking myself this. I had two weeks to think about this message, believe you me. One of the things that was very helpful to me is I sent this message out to the interns and asked them to critique it before I preached it. And some of them had some very, very convicting insights. And I thought to myself, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I should have just let the Holy Spirit guide me instead of these interns. What do they know? And, and, and God was like, why are, you, why are you resisting that? You know why I was resisting that? Because it's so convicting. It's so convicting. So here's the convicting point I want to bring to your attention as a, as a husband today. Are you using the authority that God has given you as your husband to create an environment for God to do for your wife, what God is doing for the church? Or are you using your power and authority to somehow make your role as a husband better? To make it easier for you? You know, happy wife, what do we say? Happy wife, happy life. Man, I'm husband. I want a happy life. What's the way to get a happy life? Happy wife. All right, so what do I got to do to get a happy wife? You understand why I'm using power there? I'm using whatever I'm using, my power and authority, to get a happy wife. But why do I want a happy wife? So I can get a what? Happy life. And Jesus would look at that and say, you're exactly doing what pagans do. That is exactly why pagans use their power. They use their power to get a better life or to get a better position or to advance their name or to advance their socioeconomic standing. And so happy wife, happy life is actually right in that whole mix. Well, I really don't like the conflict in our home. I I wish we had a a, a more peaceful home. I wish our kids were doing better. And so, you know, if I could just do the right things, I'll get a better wife. I'll get better kids. I'll have a better house. I'll have a better home. And Jesus goes right to that thinking, and Paul goes right to that thinking with this word agape, and he says that thinking needs to be exploded out of our thoughts. That is not why you use your God-given position and the authority, the little delegated authority God has given to you as a husband. So why do we do this? 
And that's the third thing we see in the text. There is a role model that we're given. It is in the second half of verse 25. We're to love our wife like Christ loved the church. And and this is what he did. He gave himself up for her. We could say it this way. He loved sacrificially. He, He gave. This this refers to a huge defining act, a sacrifice that you and I know about. What was the sacrifice? What was the ultimate thing that Christ did on behalf of his church? And you and I both know he gave up his life. This is talking about his death on the cross. And and this is all through the New Testament. This, This defining act made everything possible for you and for me. Listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul said this, The life I now live in the flesh, in other words, my own life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. In John 10, verse 11, Jesus says the very same thing. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So he loved us sacrificially and he loved us voluntarily and supremely. He gave himself. This was not a forced sacrifice, but it was willingly given out of deep love and desire for our well-being. John 15:13. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 10 17 through 18, for this reason, the Father loves me. Why? Why does God love you? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This authority I have received from my Father. Can I just urge you to be careful about something when you read John 10, 17? It's like, Oh, so that's how Jesus went to the cross because he knew that he was going to rise again and, he, and so he kind of knew it all. And so, But don't minimize the excruciating agony of what he went through, the shame of it, the depth of the suffering that's wrapped up in, in that one moment where for the first time in all eternity, God the Father turned his face away from his son. Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, why have you forsaken me? And he went to that cross voluntarily. He loved sacrificially. Why? There was a particular objective that Christ had in all of this. Why did he do this? Why did he take all of his power and all of his authority? Why did he step down willingly from the throne of heaven and take upon himself the form of a servant and, and, and come and, and be willing to die, not just an ordinary death, but the death of, a, of execution, the death of a, a criminal? Why would he do that? And that's really the fourth thing that we see. There are objectives that Scripture advances for why Christ used his power this way. And it's in verses 26 and 27, that he might sanctify and consecrate the church to God, having cleansed her by the washing of water through the word. The idea here is to set apart, to consecrate, 
it refers in this text to the salvation that Christ procured for the church and the resulting cleansing and consecration to God that the church experienced. And this is exactly what we found out way back in chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Let me read you that text, because it's been a long time since we were back in chapter 1. Listen to what Paul says. Even as he, that's God, chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God said, I want a group of people that I'm going to make holy and blameless through the work of my son, Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says, the reason that Christ loved you and that he did this willingly and voluntarily and sacrificially and supremely, the reason he did this was so that you would be set apart to God. You would be cleansed. And then he says, I didn't just do this to sanctify and consecrate you to God. I did this to present you to God in glory and in a glorious condition so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The idea here is is a formal public presentation. The delivery over of someone to someone. This, two weekends ago, I had the wonderful privilege of officiating the marriage of two people who are members in our church. How many of you love weddings? I mean, let's be honest. How many of you really love weddings? You should at least like your own wedding, so your hands should be up. Husbands, that's the first thing I need to tell you. When somebody says, do you like weddings? The answer is, what? Yes. Do you want to watch your wedding video? What's the answer to that? There's the answer you want to give, and then there's the answer God wants you to give. (laughs) And that answer is, oh, I would be delighted to watch the wedding video. If you're smart, you accidentally taped over it, right? But that's not what you should do. And in today's world, that you don't get to do that with all kinds of electronic differences between the old times of of videos. So I don't even know why I got off on that. Um, Oh, present. (laughs) Present. You're presenting. So, so at this wedding, there came a moment when this young lady was presented to the entire assembly. And she was radiant. Amazing. That's the idea. It's not just that Christ had the intent and God had the intent of separating you out to himself. He wanted to restore you to something to present you formally to the entire universe in a condition that he describes in this word, doxa, glory. Think about that for a minute. Think about the implications of that term. There was a time when our first parents radiated with that glory. And then when sin came, it was like a light went out. And all of that glory that radiated from them vanished. Paul puts it this way in Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of what? God's glory. 
But there are times in the scripture where you see a restoration of that glory, even temporarily. For example, when Moses went up in in the mountain and met with God, he came back down, and what was his face like? He had been with God, he had seen God, and what was his face like? It radiated light, it was glorious, it was so bright But it was fading, and he put a veil over it so Israel wouldn't see the fading glory. There are other times where you see this, when you see three disciples going up the mountain with Jesus, and then all of a sudden they see Jesus, and they see Moses and Elijah with Jesus. These three individuals are radiating with glory. And that's the point. There is coming a time when you will be restored to that glory. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that that process is already beginning as you look into the word of God and you are progressing from one level of glory to another. And that's what Paul talks about when he says he is going to do this by washing of water with the word. And the whole point is to enable the church to be holy and blameless, to be without blemish, to be morally and ethically holy and pure. He did this for individual Christians. In chapter 1, verse 4, he's doing it now in this text for the entire church. And how this happens is through the word that God's Spirit uses to cleanse you. And here's the point that Paul is making. This is what Christ is up to. This is what he's using his power for. This is what he's using his authority for. He's not trying to make a better life for himself. He is trying to do things and create a context in which a particular group of people will be unusually blessed by their relationship to God and the work that God is doing in their life. Now, gentlemen, here's here's something I really want to make sure I hear and you hear. We do not sanctify our wives. We do not have the power to sanctify our wives. That is what Christ is doing. He is doing that in your wife, just like he is doing it in your life. But I will say this. You can create a context for your wife that is very conducive to sanctification, or you can create a context for your wife that is very, very difficult for sanctification. You can create a context for your wife that is conducive, that makes it easy for the Spirit of God to work in her life and for the Word of God to continue to sanctify her just like it's sanctifying you. Or you can use your power and your authority to create an atmosphere that makes it very oppressive and difficult for that process to happen. That's the truth. That's what Paul is getting at here. And so you say, well, I I certainly don't want to do that. I'm not sure I know quite what to do. And that's the fifth thing. There is a reminder that God gives to every husband. And he basically says this, you know exactly how to do this. I mean, you've got this model. This is how Christ is doing it 
with the church, and this is why he's doing it. He's, he's doing this to consecrate the church to God, to present the church in full glory and splendor, and he's doing it through the sanctification process of the word so that you will be holy and blameless. You, you can create a context in which this process can happen seamlessly with your wife, or you can create a context and an atmosphere where this is very difficult for her, and you know exactly how to do this. Well, how do I know how to do this? Well, you already do it for yourself. Listen to what Paul says in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. He's looking at every one of us husbands and he's saying, you know how to create a context in which your wife can thrive in the sanctification process that God has for her. You know how to do that because you know exactly how to do it in your own life when you are trying to take care of your own body. You know how to nurture your body. You, you know how, how to be careful and considerate of your body. You know when you've pushed it too far. You know when you need to push it more. You know exactly how to take care of your body so that it grows in a way that is healthy. You know how to cherish your body. It's not just that you know how to take care, how to nurture it. You know exactly how to make your body feel a certain way. You, you know how to be tender with your body. You, you know how to show attentiveness to the parts of your body that desperately need it. You know how to do this. And Paul actually is going to go deeper than this. But he's basically saying this to every husband. You know exactly how God wants you to use your power and your authority so that the sanctification of your wife by the word of God, that the spirit of God is doing in her can proceed in an unhindered way. You are not the sanctifier of your wife. The spirit is. But you can use your power and your authority to thwart that process or to make that process hard. So if you really are going to use your power and your authority to create a context so that the Spirit of God can do for your wife what Christ is doing for the church, you need to love your wife like you love your own body. You, you need to be careful with your wife. You need to cherish your wife. You need to be considerate and tender like a good father would be considerate over his children as he raises them, like a good mother would be attentive and affectionate toward her children as she nurtures them. You, as a husband, need to do this for your wife. And that brings us to the final thing this morning, and that is this. There is a rationale. There is a rationale that Scripture gives for this. I mean, let's, let's stop for a minute and, and just observe something. This is radically different than anything anybody was thinking about in Ephesus when they were thinking about marriage. 
When Paul said, husbands, love your wives, that would have been a shocking statement by itself. But by the time we get through what we've been through this morning, it's stunning. It's jaw-dropping. It's like, how in the world am I ever going to be able to do this and and why? And so there is a rationale that Paul lays out in Scripture. and, And Paul says, listen, you know how to take care of your body and I'm telling you how to take care of your marriage. And, and, and it's not just me talking. This is verified by nature's design. Nature designed it this way. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. That is a stunning statement. We are members of his body. This this fundamental truth that we know how to love ourselves is so fundamentally hardwired into our nature from birth that it's it's so fundamentally uh, understood by us that it's the very illustration that God chose to use to help us understand the second half of the law of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and you shall love who? your neighbor as yourself. I mean, this is exactly what Leviticus 19, 18 says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. No vengeance, no grudge bearing. There's a whole list of things in Leviticus that comes now into play when you're going to love your neighbor like you love yourself. It's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12 and in Romans 13. Paul talks about this and in Galatians 5 and in James 2. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. And here's Paul's point. There is no neighbor who is nearer and dearer to you as a husband than your wife. But it goes beyond that. Scripture substantiates what nature designed. Look at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There is an insoluble, indissolvable union that is so intense, so deeply personal, that it is though those two people are one. That's the idea that's being presented here. And it's actually what you experienced when you got married, and it's, it's even more what you experienced when you became related to Christ. You can say it this way. This relationship is so intimate and so entwined that what happens to one deeply affects the other. What happens to the other deeply affects the one. You could almost say it this way. What happens to one happens to the other. And by the way, that is exactly where Paul is going with all of this. Because what happened to Christ happened to you. I was crucified with Christ. What happened to him happened to me. Nevertheless, I live. I was raised with Christ. What happened to him happens to me. Theologians call this amazing truth the union with Christ. That's the theological name for what we're talking about. 
It's this, that when, when Christ embraced you and you embraced him, when he called you and he elected you and he saved you, he brought you into this indivisible, insoluble union that is so tightly knit to him that what happens to him happens to you. And what happens to you actually happened to him. And, and there's no real way for us to understand that except this. God says, I designed something that will help you understand that. I designed marriage. You will never understand union with Christ just by words alone. You'll never understand the intimate depth of that. It's not just that this is a theological reality that the death, you should have died, Christ experienced, and the righteousness and the blessing and the favor that rightly belonged to Christ, you now enjoy. Okay, that's great theology. I got 10 verses written down that make that all work. But do you understand the intense feeling, the depth of that relationship that Christ has? for you. And God said, I want you to understand that. And the best way I know to explain it to you is to design a relationship that is all by itself. It is unique. There's no other relationship like this anywhere in the world or in the universe. It's different than friendship. It's different than compatibility. It's different than desirability. It's different than than family love. There's only one relationship in the world that can communicate this, and it's marriage. It's when a man and a woman make a covenant together, and they come together in one flesh, and they actually become one, so that what happens to one happens to the other. If you've ever experienced a cancer journey, the other member of the marriage goes through that journey. If, if your wife experiences some unique pain or sorrow, you experience that. If your wife experiences some unbelievable joy, the birth of a child, it is, it is something you experience. There is this almost indescribable thing that, that happens in marriage. And God says, now that's why I designed it that way. That thing that you're, you know and you're experiencing but you're having trouble describing, that's exactly how I want you to feel about marriage because that is a very small illustration of how Jesus Christ feels about you. It's stunning. And that's why, gentlemen, marriage matters. That's why Paul said, the mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. This marriage I'm talking about is the human illustration I designed to explain to you an incredible secret that I'm now revealing to you, how Christ feels about you and what he did to bring that to reality. So gentlemen, why should you love your wife? Not so that you would have a happy home, or a happy life, or even a happy marriage. You should love your wife because it is the amazing display that God created for the entire universe to witness of what his love for you is actually like. 
And if we really get honest about this, there's not a one of us as men in this room who are sufficient for this. I mean, I'm up here talking, but I'm down there listening with every other husband in this room. How do we do this? I mean, that's why, that's why we went back to chapter 5 and, and we read that portion of scripture at the very beginning about wisdom that comes from God that is applied to our life and strength that comes from God that is energizing us through the ministry of the spirit you and I as husbands are never going to be able to do this in our human strength so gentlemen as we close this morning let me ask you something are you making it easy are you using your position as the leader of your home to make it better for you or are you using all of that authority to serve your wife so that as the spirit of God desires to sanctify her you have made it easy for that process and you have not made it hard for her that's a very convicting question say well what does it actually look like well let me give you a couple of things that I've had to ask myself Do you value your wife's wisdom? I mean, do you treasure her as an equal image bearer in your relationship? Do you treasure her wisdom? Do you talk to her? Do you ask her advice about the big stuff in life? Are you doing life with her as an image bearer? Do you value her words? Do you listen? Do you actually take time to listen? I I struggle with this. Beth will tell you. And I think I'm not the only one in this room that does. It's like, okay, I've listened. I've listened. And you've said this before. And I've heard this before. And um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know how to listen without listening. I mean, it's a skill. It's a bad skill. It's not a good skill. Do you listen? Do you treasure her worth? Do you take time? And I, I don't mean like just time, but are, are there, are, is there tender time with your wife? Do you value her walk with God? Do you pray for her? And do you pray with her? And then here's the big thing. Do you model what healthy submission to God looks like are you a good repenter are you a gentle leader i don't know the answer to all of that and if i had to give you that answer this morning there would be places where i would say you know i need i need god's help this morning in that so here's what i want to do if you're married this morning i want you to reach over and i want you to grab your wife's hand would you do that just grab your wife's hand honey i'm grabbing your hand you're down there, I'm up here. But metaphorically, what happens to me happens to you. What happens to you happens to me. I was in the sermon, by the way. And as a husband, would you just say to your wife, I am so thankful that God gave you to me. Would you just tell your wife that? Honey, I'm thankful that God brought you into my life. Would you say that to your wife? You say, oh, that's awkward. Is it? Is it really awkward? So well, that, that's like really private, is it? Can I just tell you what we've been studying? Your marriage is being watched by the entire universe. 
Everything is being watched. See, I, I am thankful that God gave you to me, and by His grace, I want to truly love you. I want to truly love you. Not for my good, or not even for your good, but for God's glory. I want to love you. Not according to my wisdom, and not by my strength, but by His. And with God's help, I want to serve you as your husband.